Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on May 19th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. As you heard in last week's talk with David Pogue, I recently returned from MacMania, a week-long series of lectures about Apple products that took place on a cruise ship that sailed from New York City to Bermuda and back. Yes, it's a tough life, but somebody has to do it. I had the chance to talk on the ship to Jason Snell, editorial director of Macworld, and to Peter Watling, one of the world's foremost app developers. First up is Jason Snell. Joining us is the ScientificAmerican.com website editor Robin Lloyd, who also made the trip. We all talked in my cabin on a Holland America ship, the Veendam. So, Jason, I just spotted you with a Kindle. Yes, yes, I, I have a Kindle. I've had a Kindle for a little more than a year now, and I'm still using it, even though there's an iPad in the world. It's true. So what does that say about, if anything, about uh, the Kindle killer aspect of the iPad? Well, I think what it says is that uh, people in the technology media business really like to talk about killers. And I think the reality is a lot less clear. I don't think there are product killers in the world, that the no one product kills another product. In fact, the best sign that you're doing something right is that everybody else is releasing a killer for your product because that means everybody's trying to find a way to beat your product and your product's like the Death Star. It's just, it's perceived as this uh, unbeatable product. But, you know, in reality, there isn't such a thing, I think, as a product killer. And the iPad doesn't kill the Kindle. They're different. And um, it changes maybe how you use a product like the Kindle if you have the option of using an iPad. But that's not the same as just blowing it out of the water. They're not identical at all. Now, the iPad will incorporate, it has the Kindle app that the iPhone also has, which means that the Kindle store is available to an iPad user. So what does that, what do you think that means for the future of the, the whole Kindle enterprise, you know, the hardware and the software? Well, it depends on what Amazon really wants to make money at. Um, Apple clearly wants to make money selling hardware. And everything else is secondary. They're not really going to make a lot of money selling books or even things like apps and uh, music and videos on iTunes are really a means to an end, which is to sell iPods and iPhones and iPads. Um, so the question with Amazon is, are they really in this business to sell Kindles or are they in this business to sell um, content via this Kindle platform? And I think that's probably what it is because they've been very open to try and get Kindle apps on every uh, mobile device they can, including the iPad. And the Kindle app on the iPad is great. I actually prefer it to the Apple iBooks app. Um, I think that it's got a better selection. I think it's just as good, if not better, um, software. And Amazon's built in this WhisperSync system where you can read a book, you can start a book on a Kindle and then move to an iPad and then move to your iPhone and then back to the Kindle. And every time you open one of those devices up, it remembers where you were. So it's a pretty good system that they've built. So if if what Amazon wants is sort of the pervasiveness of the Kindle store, then um, the iPad is a good thing for Amazon. Or, yeah, for Amazon and Apple, because Apple wants to sell iPads and Amazon just wants to have Kindle everywhere. And to a degree, do you think that it's um, a question that neither company really knows the answer to yet and, and the users are really going to work this out among themselves and, and determine the course that the two companies go in? 
I think that's always the case that companies often will have a good idea of what people will do with their products, but they're, you know, they're usually wrong to a certain degree and people do crazy stuff. And some of it is um, completely unanticipated by the, by the manufacturers and yet ends up being a huge part of the business. So I think that's one of the questions here is how are people going to use these devices and, and how the software is going to evolve and how the, the contracts between the different kind of content manufacturers evolve. One of the big things, uh, about the Kindle right now is you can't read newspapers and books that you bought on the Kindle on any device other than the Kindle. So there is some stuff that can't go to the iPad right now. And it's interesting to see where that goes. And if that's something that Amazon holds tight to in order to protect the viability of their hardware, or if it's just purely contractual that they didn't get the rights. You said people do crazy stuff. What uh, Did you have anything specific in mind? In the history of, of this technology that, that you were thinking of specifically? Well, I, I think actually, I, if I use the App Store as an example, um, Apple had some ideas about how people would use the iPhone hardware when they opened the App Store after a year of sort of selling the iPhone with nothing on it but Apple stock applications. But I don't think Apple really expected the variety of apps that we've seen. And, and, you know, I think with something like the Kindle, or or the iPad, there's a lot of question about where are people going to use it? Where are people going to not use it? Apple may have some real clear feelings about how the iPad is going to be great in all these different environments, and it may turn out that the glare on the screen is just too great and nobody wants to use it outside and they need to go back to the drawing board there. Or maybe um, Amazon, I think, discovered that people wanted to, do, to view PDF files on the Kindle and their PDF browser is really terrible. And, uh, and in fact, the smaller Kindle couldn't view PDFs at all until a recent software update. So I do think that these manufacturers always make some choices about what people are going to want and what they don't want and find that some of those choices are right and some of those choices are just wrong. And then the question is, how do they, how do they evolve and can they evolve or, or, you know, or did they make a decision in the hardware, like with the original Kindle, where it's just too late that that screen really can't show PDFs and it's sort of a lost cause for that feature. Right. And even with the firmware update, you, you can see the PDF now, but it's teeny tiny. Yeah. It's terrible. And it's not, I, I tried it once and I said, Oh, okay. And then I gave up. And that's some place where the, the iPad, because it was built as this open platform for third party development is, um, much more flexible than a device like the Kindle, which in the end, I think might be to the Kindle's benefit because it's a great, Unitasker, it's good at showing text on a screen and reading it in bright sunlight. And I don't think that um, a device like the iPad makes the need for a product like the Kindle evaporate completely. I, I would choose the Kindle in bright sunlight over the iPad every time because you can't see anything on the iPad in bright sunlight. Well, as some wag said at one of the classes earlier in the week, the fingerprints on the iPad screen will cover up the glare. Yeah, if you've ever wondered where you touch your iPad screen, just take it outside and you'll see your fingerprints all over it. The police will will come if there's a if there's a crime and there's an iPad present. Go to the iPad. All the prints are there. No dusting necessary. Yeah, exactly. And Jason, I was wondering what your experience was so far as an e-reader with the 24-ounce issue with the iPad. Are you finding it weighty when you read on it or is it not really an issue well, I think that's one of the Kindle's great advantages is it is so light compared to the iPad. The iPad is light compared to a computer. It's not light compared to a Kindle because it is a pound and a half. Um, I find it um, harder to hold out of a case. I think it's kind of slippery. In 
in a case, it's easier to hold it. I don't, my arm doesn't get tired so much, but it is a little bit bulky and I find it, I sort of rested on myself, rested on my, on my chest while I'm laying down and reading it. Um, it's a first generation product and I think the weight, Apple, Apple's compromise was that they added weight so they could add that big battery. And the fact is it'll last 10 or 12 hours and it's very impressive. And I think they probably made the right decision. But, you know, when I pick up the Kindle, I'm amazed at how light it feels in comparison because the iPad is, yeah, the iPad is a weight compared to the Kindle. It's just compared to laptops where it, um, where it shines. I've read three, four hours in a row on the Kindle without any issues. I haven't tried that on, the iPad, but I know on the iPhone, even there, obviously the smaller size is an issue, but the, the, the backlit screen does make your eyes tired after a while. Yeah, some people have pro- more problems with backlit screens than other people. It hasn't really bothered me. Um, at night, I um, turn the brightness down all the way, and um, the Kindle app has an invert mode where it puts um, white on black background instead of black on white background. So it's pretty dark, and um, I found that a pretty comfortable experience and certainly preferable to my previous way of reading in the dark, which was getting out a little AA battery-powered um, book light that I have to clip onto my Kindle um, which seems so backward that you have to have a second electronic device attached to your first electronic device, but the e-ink screen on the Kindle doesn't light itself. So um, that's a huge iPad advantage. It's sort of in, in the dark, the iPad wins. In bright light, the, the Kindle wins. Um, I, I don't have a problem reading on the iPad. I think that it's fine. It, it doesn't bother my eyes, partially, I think, because the screen is um, so much bigger, so that the type is bigger, and it's just a little more pleasant. But everyone's mileage will vary. I think that may be one of the things that Apple doesn't really know about the iPad is, will people really read on it or not? They they can test it with their people, but they they can't test it in the real world because they keep everything secret. So now it's the real world's turn to say, oh, yeah, I never read on my iPad um, and we'll see whether they say that or not. And have you have you been uh, producing anything on the iPad? Some people say, oh, it's a consumption device, much better than a production device. I think it can be both. I think it is a better consumption device because um, you can sort of just lean back and look at the web and read your email, um, really quickly respond to emails. Um, I have written articles on the iPad using the Bluetooth uh, external keyboard. I, I don't think I would advise anyone to write lengthy documents on the touchscreen. But, um, you know, if you're traveling and you want to travel light, I do think you could travel with um, with just an iPad and maybe a keyboard. Um, I've always found myself wanting to just take my iPhone on some business trips, but knowing that I need to write a little bit more than I can peck out on that little tiny screen. So... I think that primarily, yes, the iPhone or the iPad is for um, is for viewing things, but I do think that it's got potential as a as a creation medium. I just think it's not as fully baked for that. I always used uh, PCs prior to the last basically eight months, except for a little bit at, at Scientific American's offices. We have uh, Macs, and um, then I got an iPhone, and the aesthetics. Of Apple, and this is well-known territory, but for me, it's new. I bought a MacBook recently, and everything right down to the bag that they put the box in at the Apple store is so elegant and purposeful. I mean, the bag doubles as a backpack. You're never going to throw it away. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, the attention that they pay to that kind of thing versus what the... uh the big clunky companies seem to be paying attention to or not paying attention to. 
Yeah. One of the things that, um, sets Apple apart, I think, from most technology companies is the, is the focus on what, uh, the experience is like for the, for the customer at the end and, and, and how does somebody want to use this product and how does it feel getting it out of the box? And, um, a lot of high tech companies are run by engineers and there's nothing wrong with that because obviously you need somebody to design circuit boards and to write code and all of these things. So you've got programmers and you've got uh, hardware engineers. Um, the problem is that if, if you talk to an engineer about building a device, they're going to say, well, the best place to put the power switch is over here because there's space for it on the circuit board. Um, whereas if you're looking at it from the end user, you'll say, well, that's a terrible place to put the power switch. It needs to go down here. Otherwise, they're going to keep hitting it all the time. And anybody who's the, – the extreme example here is like a cheap clock radio that you buy at the drugstore for $4 or something like that where it's as much a commodity product as as possible. It was made in probably in China. Um, it's using a circuit board that's probably been kicking around for 10 or 15 years and they've sort of fitted into the cheapest plastic case possible. And if you've ever used one of these kinds of products, they're, they're terrible. They're hard to use. They're, they're, um, they're unpleasant, but they're cheap. That's the extreme example. But I think when you're talking about PCs, you're talking about hardware companies. They don't control the software. That comes from Microsoft. So they don't have very much to differentiate themselves from their competitors. The cost pressures are incredibly high. They're focused on getting these products out the door, and they're so, sort of like interchangeable widgets. Um, that's one approach, but Apple's approach is this from this totally other direction. They're thinking about what the end product is and what the users are going to want. They control the software and the hardware together. Um, it's just a, it's a very different process, and one of the uh, frustrations in seeing how Apple is often portrayed um, in the in the media, especially in the financial media, actually, is that um, traditionally they've always said, well, why doesn't Apple behave like Dell or why doesn't Apple behave like Microsoft? And they're really not even playing the same game. The end result is the same, which is it's a computer, but um, they haven't been playing the same game for a long time because the the entire they control their entire means of production because they've got the software and the hardware and and have a philosophy that's very focused on the on the end user. So yeah, it's it's um it's interesting um it, with the Mac the lesson seemed to have been that um nobody cared because the Mac was never as successful as uh as Windows was. Uh, with the iPod I think people started to realize well maybe Apple's approach is the right one and it just didn't they made bad decisions early on with the Mac or the time wasn't right. And I think with the um the momentum they've gained first with the iPhone or the iPod and then with the iPhone and and the momentum the Mac has gotten in the last 10 years. I think maybe um, Apple has figured out that their approach works, at least for some section of the market that people do, you know, people do care about that experience. Some people don't. And those people are never going to be Apple customers. And I think that Apple doesn't want them as customers. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is, is this an overstatement? But my recollection is that before the iPod, Apple was kind of hurting and if if not for the iPod, maybe this is a ridiculous kind of alternative history mm. question, but if not for the iPod, would Apple have disappeared? If not for the iPod, Apple would be a very different company now and would be very small and, and might might be gone. I think that's absolutely true. Um, in 1997, they were basically on the ropes and Steve Jobs came back to the company actually because they wanted the operating system that his, his software company, Next, 
owned, which is essentially Mac OS X now. They, they used it as the basis for the Mac OS. But in the deal, they also got Steve Jobs, which turned out to be a pretty good throw-in. Um, because Steve Jobs immediately set out changes at the company. The first um, big change was the original iMac. That was the sign that they were going to do things a little differently. The original iMac got a lot of buzz. Um, it was the you know all-in-one computer with only three things you needed to plug in or two things you needed to plug in. Um, and they went from there. But the, but the iPod was the transformative event. And it took a while because the first iPod actually didn't work on Windows. It only worked on the Mac. But once they came out with the iPod that ran on Windows and they came out with iTunes for Windows and that product started to accelerate, a few things happened. First off, the iPod started to sell well, and that was a, a hit product for Apple. But the second thing that happened was people who'd never bought an Apple product before in their lives bought one and said hey, this is actually a pretty cool product. I like this product. And felt attached to the to the product almost emotionally and started to think of Apple less as this kind of weird brand that makes incompatible computers that I would never want to use and more of the people who made this iPod that I think is really cool. And, um, and then they would wander into the retail stores, which Apple was just launching about then in their local shopping mall, and they would see um, a Mac. And that really started the Mac sales growth. And it, the iPod laid the foundation for the iPhone, which, you know, was always sold as part iPod. The iPhone has the iPod in it, so it is also an, I, an iPod. So playing off the iPod's popularity. And then with the iPhone's popularity, it's sort of cascaded from there. So really in the last 13 years, the, the transformation that's gone on from what Apple's brand represents to most people, it's gone from being, you know, making computers that I, that most people can't use to being this brand that represents kind of cool products that people actually enjoy using. And that that's what saved the company. And the iPod was the start because the iPod reached people who weren't Mac users and got them thinking about Apple in a different way. Yeah, I remember people getting iPods when they first came out and just saying, this thing is, it's the most amazing device I've ever seen. And, and again, back to the aesthetics that it was so beautiful to, to handle and that just the, the wheel that controlled everything was just such a a mind-boggling breakthrough to a lot of users. Well, yeah, and even there you saw Apple's design philosophy. Um, if you compare it to one of the, like the Arcos jukebox that was out at that time, which was a hard drive-based MP3 player at the same time, and it was this big, wide, ugly thing with this kind of weird interface, and it was like a you know, little digital readout with the, the, the names. It, I mean, it was, it was awful. It was something put together by engineers and they didn't really think about the interface to it and it worked. Um, but it was never going to give you that kind of sense of, of pleasure. Plus Apple engineered that iPod to fit in your pocket and the Arcos jukebox was just too big. It wasn't something you could really stick in your pocket and walk around with. And, um, I think that was good timing. They waited until they had a tiny hard drive. That was that five gigabyte hard drive that they could build their product around. So essentially it was the size of the drive. Um, and that made all the difference. Now, you know, we look back on it now and think, wow, they had a, they had a spinning hard drive in a, a device you're supposed to put in your pocket. That's a recipe for disaster. Um, and, and I think this year we may see the last of that hard drive iPod. They've gone to flash memory with it, but at the time that was the best they could do. And it was a huge breakthrough to be able to put a thousand songs in your pocket. And people got that. They're like, you mean I can take my CD library and stick it in my pocket and, Back then, we didn't even know, people didn't even know about digital music. Apple had to, at Apple's iPod launch event, they gave everybody 10 CDs taped together in a cube and an iPod to try preloaded with the contents of those 10 CDs because they had to explain 
that you stuck your CDs in the computer and put them on the iPod because people had no idea that that's how it worked and that that was legal if you own the CDs to put them on the iPod. So it, we've come a long way from there. So are they, are they working on anything implantable? <laughs> well, the... It is funny. We always joke about Apple's design philosophy leading to some very strange and, and, and quirky conclusions. Um, one thing we call the war on buttons. Steve Jobs hates buttons. He, he just hates, he hates buttons. I'm, I'm, it may be one reason where, why he wears a turtleneck. I don't know. But, uh, if you look at the latest iPod shuffle, it, it has nothing on. It's just a little slab there. You could practically stick it in your ear. Or wear it as a, I think I, I, I've seen there's a little adapter for it that people can wear it as an earring. It, it, there's nothing to it. And I think that, that Apple is always searching for, um, fewer physical buttons on the, on the devices because they think they're clunky. Um, small as possible, as thin as possible, um, as light as possible. And with battery life that, um, which causes weight. So that's what they're always fighting against with battery life that will be longer than any sort of normal session you have with that product. Uh, so when you look at the iPod shuffle, it's, it's in some ways it's Steve Jobs' ultimate product because it's got no buttons on it. It's a, just a, a, a thing. It's just a little metallic slab. So that's, that's what I think that's where Apple is going. So implantable, I don't know. Sometimes with the iPod Shuffle, I wonder if it would be better off as um, sort of headphones with an iPod in them. But um, and we may get there. We may get there because they, that's all part of Apple's philosophy: no buttons, as few buttons as possible, as small, as thin, as light as possible. And um, eventually, yeah, all laptops will be MacBook Airs, and <laughs> and I don't know what they'll have a laser that'll shoot. Uh, Shoot the images directly onto the back of your retina so you don't need a screen anymore. I'm sure that they would love that if they could, if they could manage it. Is he Amish? Maybe he's from an <laughs> Amish background. He hates buttons. He hates the buttons. It's, it's very weird, but it's, it's true. If you look, Apple is always trying to reduce the number of buttons on its devices. I think they just feel that, that buttons are complicated because you don't know which button to push. And there's some truth to that, but I think that it can go, kind of to an extreme and it's like why why have five buttons when you can have one well i like to go up down left right and enter and no no you just need the one button just wait for it to come around again and you know sometimes i i think they get obsessive to a fault about it but the goal is simplicity for the user i mean that's what they're trying to push people to is how can we make this as easy as possible because technology is not it's still not as easy and understandable to regular people as it should be and that's one of the big failings of the technology industry. And I think that uh, everybody at Apple um, believes that to be the case, that they could do, they could all do better at making regular people be able to walk up to a piece of technology and try it. They love those stories about the 90 year old woman using an iPad because that's in some ways, that's what Apple is about is getting somebody who is completely um, averse to technology because it's too hard to try something and go, oh, I understand how this works. I, I don't need to read a manual or, or have my grandson tell me how to do it. I can just pick it up and use it. Peter Watling is a pioneer in app development. We also talked in my cabin somewhere in the Atlantic. You have a, a huge background in bringing all kinds of information together into a single site often in real time so that people can check hmm. weather or commodities prices news sports things like that 
and uh, you've been doing this for 25 years. Yes. But but lately, you've been making your living writing apps for mobile devices. Yeah, you bet. So, yeah, the phone, when it came out, I just loved the phone. It's a perfect fit. I just loved the Apple platform I've been working in. And, uh, and the iPhone was just a perfect extension to that. It's based on the same tools that I was familiar with. And it was totally mobile. And so the, um, quite often when new program, when, when something like the iPhone comes out in places like New Zealand, we're miles, miles away from where these things are made and where they're basically targeted, even though it is internationalized. So often we get these things and, and they don't have any local content. The weather information is based on computer models out of America, which is sort of a marginal value and, and they don't have any local information. So it was, wasn't too hard to sort of, you know, be a big fish in a small pond. If I wrote a few programs in New Zealand to deal with local TV data, to deal with local weather, to deal with local um, TAB sports information. I wrote the same sort of information I was already familiar with. I spoke to the same suppliers and was able to deliver a whole bunch of applications for that, that was sort of really targeted at the New Zealand market. And they've been and remain really popular. And you wake up one day and you realize you're actually making more money <laughs> writing funny. these phone apps. Yeah. Then you are at your day job. That's right. And it got to a point where I was too busy to go to work, really. I had uh, too many options and possibilities. It was around the same time. One of the first apps I also put out was the game, that bubble wrap. But right. you are the creator of the world famous bubble wrap. <laughs> yeah, that's me. So where did that come from? Why did you have this idea in the first place? Yeah, what was that? I guess your friend of mine said, uh, how about, you know, that, well, I think you should, you know, the a bubble wrap app would be fun. And I said, oh, that would be so easy. And I, it was really in an afternoon. I sort of showed him the concept. Oh, you could, could do this. And he goes, yeah. You, and I, and he was happy for me to run with it and do what I like with it. And so, um, so that was, that worked out to be, worked out very well. I, um, so I put the thing together. I, I spent a bit more time making it into a game. So it's got a timer and it's got the right. high scores and things. And, uh, we got it on the store and I think it was, it was an advantage to get it out there so quick and it was right up there from day one. So it became pretty popular pretty quickly. And it was, I initially put a dollar on the, on a sort of charge a dollar because I didn't know how the app store was going to work. And uh, I got a, f- a few messages in the first week suggesting that, you know, it's the sort of program that should be free. And since it, I've been able to knock, knock it together quite quickly, I, I thought the same. So I made it I made it free at that point. But I um, I, I signed up with uh, AdMob, the advertising crowd. And so ever since then, it's been an ad-supported product, and that's it, worked out well. How many people have purchased or, or the free, free version or the purchase version yeah. of well, Bubble Wrap. Well, I, I think I turned it into a, a free one only after about a week. In fact, when I got my first report and it showed me that I, I thought it had a list showing me I had, um, you know, 40 sales or something, but then I, I couldn't understand that it was quite a big table of information. Turns out it was from 40 different countries and there was thousands of copies of people who bought it, but it's become free. And since it's become free, it's been you know, you probably get a hundred to one in terms of how many people will take something that's free above what they pay for it. And so in the, over the last, um, is it 18 months since the app store has been out? It's had 11 and a half million downloads. Wow. Yeah. And every day there's, uh, hundreds of thousands of people play the thing. That's incredible. It's mental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been, it's been a real surprise. Now, one of the things you said that I think might be of interest to somebody, I mean, most people are never going to write an app. Sure. Although. Is it possible that there are, I think there are tools out there so that even if I don't know how to program, if I have app ideas, the uh, software itself will allow me to turn that into an app? Yeah, well, sort of, possibly. I know there's some, there are some sort of um, frameworks out there that make it very easy to write a program that links against a particular 
if you've got a RSS feed, for example, that you like, you have a news service that might provide headlines and stories. You can set up an application that uh, a custom application that might do something peculiar in a number of of te- technology sites and others, and even some smaller companies have made up applications that are branded for their own company that that show their news information in a standard app. But even without that, now there's um. Is it 180,000 applications out there? There's an enormous amount, and there's probably a customized application for just what you want. And so, even even though they're without even having to write your own application, you can find sort of a general purpose application that you can point to services that you might want to subscribe to that can be fed with live data. Sort of the way if I wanted to create my own web page, I can just do it through somebody else's site. Yeah, and there's other applications. And now there's great programs for, for sharing content from your computer. So you can have a sort of a window onto your onto your data. It's uh it's it's nice. Now the now the phone the phone's so um connected you can the data doesn't even have to be stored on the phone to be useful. It's it's so easy for it to be pulling stuff from anywhere. Right, like the dragon naturally speaking yeah, that's dictation app for the iPhone we can't actually use it on the ship because you must be connected. That's right. Because it actually sends the audio that you're talking into the phone somewhere <laughs> where it gets transcribed and then the words come flying back through space and land in your phone somehow. It's unbelievable. It all, all the, the work's been done elsewhere. You wouldn't even know it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. One of the things you said in your talk earlier in the week was that apps are cheap, but ideas are even cheaper. Yeah. What exactly do you mean by that? Uh, well, there's, there's, um, everyone thinks they've, you know, they can get rich quick and they've got that killer application that's going to, uh, you know, that's going to be the end of all their working career. But in fact, um, it's, it's not likely that you do. <laughs> and a lot of people who have these ideas want you to uh, lock you into sort of non-disclosure agreements before they'll tell you anything about it. And, um, a lot of those ideas probably aren't worth pursuing, uh, even though it'd be nice to haves. And, uh, and a lot of, a lot of programs that even though if you, um, yeah, I'm not sure if you can make a living off a lot of these little small ideas. Everyone's got an idea that they think is going to make them rich, but it's, uh, there's a certain amount of luck involved with hitting, hitting one that is super popular. But, um, and I'm not sure if we've, uh, you know, there's lots, there is, there's a lot more ideas that haven't come out yet that I'm not even sure what they are. So I often do, um, entertain, uh, different, different concepts, but yeah, we get, we get people coming up with, um, suggestions for apps every, you know, several a week. I'd have people wanting to see if I'm interested in some venture. So what as a, as a very successful app creator, what are your criteria when you hear of an idea and you think, that might be an okay idea. I mean, what goes through your mind as as your your uh, parameters for that's going to be a good thing, or sure. no, I'm not going to bother with that. Well, up till now, a lot of my um, I think the iPhone lends itself to applications where you uh, whip it, whip your phone out in a hurry, at, at an instant's notice, uh, look something up, find the information you want, and put it away again. I think programs that sort of one trick ponies that do one small thing particularly well are, are, are things that you keep. And I like to write the programs that people are going to keep and refer back to a lot. And so that's why I've worked in with a lot of the bigger companies around in my own hometown, country, that, uh, that do have valuable information that people do want to look at often daily or, you know, frequently. So I think those sorts of programs are good. And I like being involved with these ones that have, you know, they're reasonably high profile in that because they're useful. Uh, and I'm, I'm still, and, and I think through a series of those, I'm hoping to get hold of. You know, just do do more interesting programs that 
uh, everyone gets to use. They're not necessarily going to make a hell of a lot of money, but I'm, um, it's just each one of them sort of raises my profile a little and, and gets me more interesting work next time. And even the free ones have some kind of relationship with advertising. Yeah. In fact, the bubble wrap game is my biggest earner. It's, uh, it's been quite an eye opener. I didn't realize it. I guess that's what, you know, Google have wised up to. <laughs> There's money in these advertising dollars. And, uh, yeah, indeed with the AdMob thing, it works. It's really easy to implement. And it, and all, all the user sees is a small banner across the bottom of the page. And, and if they click on it, it might go to a full page website or take over the screen. But it's, uh, it's, it's not too intrusive. And it's, uh, and it's, and you can get paid per impression, per, per just being shown and per, them clicking on it. So those pieces of pennies are going to send your kids to college. Uh, yeah, I hope so. It's uh, been popular for some time. It's it sort of has has fluctuations. Over Christmas, it was they. There's a lot of new users coming on, and they they just uh, got iPhones as gifts. Yeah, and or they might get iTunes uh, vouchers, and right. and uh, or even though this app's free, they start getting a bit more click happy and uh, filling up their machine with all new games. So that's always that's always an exciting time to watch. And long weekends, you, you can see you can see each weekend people using it more. So uh, bubble wrap two is on the horizon. Yeah, there, there will be one. I'll have to make it this because there is already a bubble wrap pro or a bubble pro. It's called, and uh, which is pretty much the same game as the original one. But I give away prize money, and I will have to adapt it a little to work on the iPad. I'll uh, when I get back home, I'll I'll be doing that. So you grew up in New Zealand, yeah, and when you were a kid. New Zealand was incredibly far away from pretty much anything else. Mm. Obviously, geographically, it still is. But now you can just sit on your iPhone or your Android or whatever your mobile device is, obviously on your desktop at home, and instantly be in touch with anything else going on in the world. So yeah. how is that different now psychologically? Yeah, we are, um, we are way more connected and it's, it's easier to, it's much, it's really quite easy to keep up with with everything and in some ways we're, we're um you know because we we've always had to be uh more resourceful because we're sort of further away i think yet yeah, we we do keep up and keep up with everything we're a very small country and so it makes we're quite easy we're quite quick to adopt new technologies i know when i was working with a big telecommunications company in wellington we were the first um city in the whole world to be 100 percent digital with our telephone exchanges because when you when you only have 400,000 people in in the that's the capital city it is only um it's not uh, not over a very large area it's uh, not not a humongous job to uh to to change the whole thing over and in fairly short order they they did that same with things like um point of sale fpos it's got widely adopted very quickly and so there's a lot of um because we're small we can adapt pretty quickly and and the country is pretty open to technology and and we, we sort of pride ourselves on being innovative and leading the world and wherever we can there are more Mac Mania cruises scheduled. They're organized by Insight Cruises, which also does the Bright Horizons series of trips with Scientific American that you may have seen advertised in the pages of the magazine. For info on Mac Mania or Scientific American cruises, go to insightcruises.com. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read our ongoing in-depth report on the BP Gulf oil disaster. Follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Don't sit under the apple tree.
tree with anyone else but me. Anyone else but me.